You know, a lot of times when we think about the apostles in the early church, we kind of think that they were operating on kind of a, a uh, kind of a timeline or a schedule that things just kind of happen one thing after another after another. And what we lose in between is many times those long stretches where they looked at what was going on in their life and didn't quite understand what it was. And I find it fascinating that Paul is uh, here dealing with a situation that he doesn't immediately respond to. In fact, there's an extended period of time. In fact, we're not even really given the indication of how long that Paul and his company remained in the city of Philippi, although I think we can at least say that it was a number of weeks, if not more, that they were there. And as they're just simply going about their daily routine, and particularly on the weekend when they would head to the river where there was a place of prayer we talked about last week, because there wasn't a synagogue in the city, they have this encounter with this uh, unusual woman. And uh, we're not given a physical description. In fact, it's fascinating to me that when we study scriptures, rarely are physical descriptions given of people. In fact, the only description we have of Jesus is that by Isaiah who said he wasn't much to look at which kind of goes against all the iconography and, and the pictures that we see in the bookstores and so forth, because every picture I ever saw of Jesus, he is smoking hot. You know, I mean, he's got, he's just a, a, a perfect specimen of white Anglo-Saxonism. But the reality is, we're told that really he would have walked in the room and we probably wouldn't have picked him out. You know, he wouldn't have said, that's the next, uh, you know, American Idol. And he would have been this guy who would have been just pretty ordinary. It wasn't his outward appearance, but it was when he opened his mouth that there was, people said they were just struck with the power and the authority which he spoke. That He didn't speak like somebody who was just repeating something he had learned, but he spoke with authority. We, the term often used in Latin was ex cathedra. It's literally coming off the throne of God right through his mouth and into the hearts of men. And we suddenly know the difference. And I think it's important for us as you and I gather here today, I would tell you what my prayer was this morning with my wife, with the prayer people I was praying with before service. What really goes through all that is that realizing that no matter how well someone like me might communicate, and to, to be honest, I work really hard to try to think through how I'm going to say what I'm saying, and sometimes it actually works. This doesn't happen to be one of those times, but nonetheless, sometimes it works. But the simple fact is that whether we're singing songs of worship, whether we're talking about the Word of God, the reality is that the power of God is the key to everything. As Moses was uh, coming off, basically rebounding out of Israel's idolatry, that he'd left for uh, 40 days, he comes back and they built an, an idol and they're worshiping it and everything is very disappointing. The Tablets are broken, and he's really pretty verklempt, uh, to put it in Hebrew. And at that moment, at that moment, God says, look, I'll forgive these people, and I'll tend in the land of Canaan. I will bless them, but I'm not going with them. And it's that moment, Moses said, I think one of the most important things that I've ever come into in the book of Exodus, where he said, Lord, if you don't go, I'm not going. In other words, he says, I want, if your presence doesn't go with you, I don't want to be any place where your presence isn't. And suddenly we get this concept that it's being in the presence of God, not just on occasions, not just on a Sunday morning, but it's living in that divine presence that is the transformational thing in our life. And we'll talk even later on about a, a gospel example of that. 
But here was Paul and these men. They're simply doing what they're doing because they want to have this intimate time with God, not just simply talking to people in the marketplace, but going to a place of prayer and talking to those who are praying and who are seeking God, these Gentiles. And they probably did this in part for very practical reasons. We oftentimes think that Paul only had what we overtly spiritual reasons, but there were some practical reasons. As we see later on, when he uses his citizenship as a Roman citizen to get himself out of a fix, or at least to keep the authorities off the church that was in Philippi. And we'll get into that further on. But it's interesting because by going to a Jewish worship service, he was participating, which was in Rome, a legal religion. Christianity did not become a legal religion for another 250 years. They were literally breaking the law every time they went to church and didn't wear their face masks. Oh, excuse me, I digress. This is why I spent my grade school in the principal's office. (laughs) But for this and other reasons, it appears that Paul's regular practice was to do nothing to provoke a confrontation or to offend the local authorities because he knew that if he did, there would be no recourse. And not only would he suffer, but the church itself would suffer. And he knew that suffering would cause many to pull away from the faith, as it has historically. But Paul's general policy, as he stated in Romans, was he said, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And yet we all know that sometimes, as much as we may want to do that, that's not going to be possible. And the reason is that Jesus said in John 3, 19, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Now, nobody readily admits, well, I just kind of love darkness. What they do is they call their darkness light. And that's what culture always does. Culture is always turning things that are good and calling them evil and turning evil things and calling those things good. It's not just a contemporary problem. This is a historical problem of culture because men ultimately want to engage in evil and dark things, but they feel guilty for it and they don't want to be condemned for it, so they rebrand it as something else. They call it something other than what it is. And so as the apostles are basically minding their own business, they pick up a tale. A young slave girl who has a spirit by which she predicts the future is the way the NIV translates it. What exactly does that mean? Well, the phrase a spirit was a common idiom in the original language. It literally meant to have the spirit of python, you know, the snake, the python. And and that has a whole, uh, whole etymology behind that. The, basically, it was based upon a myth that uh, the Greek god Apollo had killed the python that guarded the oracle of Delphi in, in Parnassus, Greek, Greece. And as a result, the python became embodied within Apollos, giving him the power to foretell the future, or so the myth goes. And so anyone who had the ability to forecast the future. They called him Pythonesis, like this young lady. And they were almost always young lady. They were given this, this particular designation because they were able to 
give personal oracles as this woman who was a slave was used by her masters for their own financial gain. It's not that unlike a, a pimp prostituting a young woman, except they did it for a slightly different reason, but not a less violent one. Her role in life was not pleasant because the spirits that actually inhabited her, as they always are, are very cruel to the body that is the host for their presence. They would also go, often go into wild, ecstatic, frenzied, catatonic states, eyes rolling back, uttering all sorts of guttural and strange no noises, crawling upon the ground, twisting and turning as they uttered their predictions and their divinations, which from what I understand historically, so often those prophecies were so vague and so indistinct that you could make anything you wanted out of them. But so desperate are men to know what lies in the future that we'll take even that sometimes. It's like, let's be honest, do you really think that fortune cookie was placed there for you? You know, you know when I opened it up and it said, you'll have many children and the labor will be tough. I found out it was true. My wife, wife suffered. Those kind of things, you know, we read those things and we think, well, I wonder if, well, this is silly and what, what's in your fortune? Let me read it. Can I trade you? You, know, you will live a long, fruitful life. And we go, I'm going to keep that one. I'm going I'm I'm to paste that on the wall. I've never had one that I opened and said, you're toast. <laughs> but that would probably be more accurate in most cases because we have this thing inside of us that we know the uncertainty of the future and we would like to find some way to prognosticate what it is. So when you're opening the paper and you see that they have the horoscope, you just kind of read it out of curiosity to see maybe there's something there for me. And yet at the same time in our adult conscious minds, we realize, well, that's just all craziness. The horoscope is based on a view of the heavens that we know isn't real or doesn't exist. And yet somehow those things perpetuate because you're talking about an unending yearning to know what the future holds. We all have a fear of death. We all have a fear of death. And I think in a way God created us that way so we wouldn't go out and kill ourselves every time we had a bad day. But at the same time, this idea of the uncertainty. I remember one great baseball star was dying of cancer not too long ago. And, and an interviewer said, well, are you afraid of death? And he says, of course, I've never done it before. And I thought, that is an honest answer. <laughs> and yet at the same time, Christ came to break the power of not only sin, but what sin brings into our lives. He came to break the power of death. And so as crazy as this divination was, and it often is really crazy, and let me just simply say, I've witnessed this very thing in places like India. I mean, literally this. I've watched this happening and seeing the evil that surrounds it and swirls all around it. It's not a coincidence that snakes were and still are associated with Satan and evil spirits. The serpent is one of the oldest and most frequently used symbols from ancient religions worldwide. I mean, it begins in Genesis, and we find it being referenced in Revelation. In Genesis 3.1, he says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
How crafty, Paul said to the Corinthians, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere, pure devotion to Christ. You see, we have to understand that the purpose of Satan occupying this young woman, possessing her and using her, and maybe even giving her a degree of accuracy in what she said was to do just that, to draw people away from Christ, away from the gospel, away from looking to the Lord, and instead to begin to look to these false prophets. Revelation tells us the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. You know, it's really strange. I mean, a strange coincidence. This is kind of off topic. The symbol of the Vatican, in fact, the term Vatican means Vatis Khan, means divining spirit. And its most common symbol for the Vatican is a red dragon. I was shocked as I've, I've been through the Vatican three or four times. And I, I was shocked as I go through doorway after doorway and I'd see the dragon over the doorway. I'd see it again and again and again. This is one of them. The idea of a divining spirit. So these things like the kundalini spirit of Hinduism, the idea that the serpent represents some source of power and essence doesn't just draw itself from nature, it draws itself from the very nature of the one who is behind it. And though most people recognize that there's evil in the world, our modernist world has convinced many that the only things that are real are the material the things that exist in the natural world, they don't believe there is any real supernatural world of the spirits. They would reason if you can't touch it, you can't count it, you can't photograph it, then it probably doesn't exist. And so when they hear the biblical accounts of demons and angels and miracles, they offer naturalistic explanations. They'll say healings were really only psychosomatic that person had leprosy, they just thought they had leprosy. The dead were raised because they actually had been in a coma and had to be revived. A feeding of the multitudes, <laughs> one commentator <clears throat> put it really well. He says, well, it was really a miracle of generosity that people had all this food inside their cloaks and when Jesus spoke to them, their hearts were so touched, they decided to share it with one another. And I'm saying, I don't know where they found that in the text, and they didn't because it's something in their heart that they don't want to give a, an entrance to the supernatural into the conversation. And when it comes to the demon possessed, that was a simple answer. Well, they're mentally ill or they're suffering from epilepsy. Yet were we told when we see demons cast out of people, they are immediately changed. The possession ends and the madness turns into sanity. One of my favorite accounts is in Luke chapter 8, verse 27. A man who was called Legion because there were so many demons residing inside of his one body. Now, Legion in the, in the Roman language basically refers to 6,000 soldiers. So basically, he wasn't in there alone. This man was occupied. And it goes, it says, Jesus was met by this demon-possessed man and for a long time he had worn out clothes or not worn clothes and lived in a house or, but lived in tombs. 
And many times the demon had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. But after his exorcism, it says, they found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed and in his right mind. And I thought to myself, you know, how true that is, that when we are sitting at the feet of Jesus and we are dressed, we are robed in the righteousness of Christ, there is a sanity in our thinking and our acting and our behaving and our living. And the problem is that many people prefer the insanity. I wonder how many people here are chained by something they can't break away from. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in solitary places, being almost driven there. We can't stand being around people, although we yearn to be around people because of some inner conflict. And I'm not saying that you're necessarily demon-possessed, but I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying that we find ourselves naked and hiding. And we wonder, how can I fix this problem we try to take medications, we go to therapy, we do all these kind of things to try to address the issue. And I'm not saying there isn't a place or that's always wrong, but what I am saying is that when we sit at the feet of Jesus, when we stop all the other stuff and we just stop and we get at the feet of Jesus, we're suddenly in the right place. And we find ourselves rightly robed, not in our own goodness or ability or accomplishments, or possessions. We are robed in only one thing. The only thing that can cover my nakedness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ who died for me on the cross and cleansed me from all sins. And then at that moment, I suddenly am in my right mind. I am in the mindedness that God created me to be in. It's such a simple thing, but it's also the hardest thing that you'll ever do. Because you have to let go of everything else. That's why I harp on the issue of spending time every day alone with God in the word and prayer because it's daily practicing the idea that's really being stated here to sit quietly with Jesus and experience his presence. It's transformational. That as you take that moment of time and some of us are just, we're really snake bit with the busyness of our lives, aren't we? The phone calls, the emails. We get up and the first thing we do, we click on the computer and we start going through our emails. And before an hour or so later, we realize we've been completely overwhelmed by stuff. But when we can step back and just simply say, be still, oh my soul. And quietly let God speak into our life. There's a moment suddenly where we look at that day and say, I'm going to approach it through the sanity of Christ not the insanity of a demon-driven world, which is the one by, which, by the way that we live in right now. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as mental illness. But this clearly wasn't the case with this gentleman or in any of those who had the demons cast from them. In fact, in every place we look in the Old or New Testament, the devil and demons are presented as real entities that inhabit the atmosphere around us and regularly interact with mankind, even taking possession of some. 
I mean, that's old and New Testament. In Deuteronomy 32, when he talked about the pagan worships that they were to avoid, he says, they sacrificed to demons. That all that image was, was an embodiment of the demonic, devilish ways. So that when we look at what they worshipped and how they worshipped, are we surprised that it was an immersion in the deepest kinds of immorality and violence? And they call that worship. Because they were worshipping demons. It was consistent with the demons that they were following. In Psalm 106, he warned that Israel, when they had sacrificed their children, their daughters, to Molech and Gekimosh, he said, they sacrificed them to demons. That's why when Jesus called his 12 disciples, Matthew tells him, he gave them authority to drive out demons, drive out unclean evil spirits. Because he said in Ephesians 2, 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who now is at work in those who are disobedient. That's who we're confronting he says, I want you to learn to, to resist that. In fact, this word air misleads us because we think he's talking about oxygen. But it's more than that. It's a broader concept of not only atmosphere around the planet, but what takes place in a dynamic, not just in the material gaseous atmosphere, but the spiritual dynamics that are taking place all around us. It literally referred to the supernatural powers that inhabit the areas around the earth and have an effect upon both the behaviors and the ultimately the fate of people. So then we talk about the wonder of UFOs. I know where UFOs come. They come from the spirit that's in the air, in the atmosphere. And people think, oh, that's where we came from. E.T. planted us here. And one day we'll go back to be with E.T., That's why Paul so simply went on to say to the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You want to measure how much you believe that? Do you want to measure in your own life to what degree you believe that the battle you're dealing with is spiritual and you're going, coming against spiritual forces? Here's how you measure it. How long does it take you to go from having a problem to praying about it? How long does it take you to get from the problem to prayer? You see, if I recognize it's a spiritual problem, that there's a spiritual dynamic, it may not be the entire dynamic, but it's a spiritual thing going on right now. And if my immediate response is say, Lord Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, bind the works of the evil one or whatever, you know, whatever verbiage you want. I don't think God's all hung up on how you state things because we never state them very well anyway. Certainly not well enough for heaven to be moved. But when we pray in the Spirit of the Lord, God interacts. And if there's anything that's a, the weakness of the church and this culture, and maybe worldwide, is that we're so slow to get to that point. We have to come to such a desperation oftentimes before we pray that we suffer a whole lot of things that probably are unnecessary. I often wonder if some of the things that are happening in our nation right now aren't because God wants to bring the church to prayer. Because as I've been reading, here's another one of those things I say that gets me in trouble. I think some of you are more 
anticipating the second coming of Trump than you are the second coming of Jesus. (laughs) As if he's the savior who's gonna fix it all. I mean, I liked a lot of his policies, but let's be honest. He's the one that created the, pushed the COVID vaccine. <laughs> and we got all sorts of questions about that. Just saying, friends, we can become so worldly focused that we do nothing really effective in the spirit. There's an old saying, you know, you've heard it before. If, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. And all of you have is a, a political perspective, then everything's a political problem. If, all you have, if you think everything is an economic problem, then all you have is a, a, an economic solution. And what God says is, if you want to look at your life in a holistic sense, ultimately, it all begins in the realm of the Spirit. From the moment of my birth to the moment that God checks me out, I am on his time frame. And everything that happens in between those two bookends of birth and death are the choices that I make whether or not I'm going to seek God or I'm going to seek something else. And when I confront problems in my life, if my first response is to go to prayer and saying, Lord, we got a problem here then I'm going to see a different consequence in my life if, it's some, if prayer instead is something that I kind of get around to after I've fired everything else I have in my handgun and there's no more bullets left. And then in desperation, I say, God! You see, evil spirits control not only individuals, as in this story, but they control cultures. They control nations. They control kingdoms. In Daniel 10, Satan is referred to as the prince of Persia, which was the coming prevailing power in the world. Later on, he's called the prince of Greece, which ultimately drives out Persia and takes over the world. Ezekiel refers to him as the king of Tyre. But it's interesting. It's the devil himself, when confronting and tempting Jesus, said to him in Matthew 4, 8, he says, if you bow down and worship me, he says, all the kingdoms of the world and all of its glory... I'll give to you. We need to step back. All the kingdoms and all of their glory is mine. And I give it to those who worship me. You want to understand what's going to happen when the Antichrist rises to power? It'll be men completely consciously will know that the source of power is to worship the darkest of spirits. Now the good news for you and me is, and something that Jesus clearly knew as Satan was tempting him, is what we finally read in chapter 11 of Revelation, verse 15, when it said, the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. As Paul said to the Philippians, every knee at that day will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, which doesn't mean that they can, it's a confession of faith because there are some we're told in Revelation and Matthew and other places, it'll be a confession of terror at the realization that they have believed a lie. What exactly is a demon anyway? Well, 
Most commentators, teachers, scholars basically agree that when it speaks in Revelation 12, 3 of the enormous red dragon who swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth, stars is a metaphor that is used uh, for angels early on in the book of Revelation. And as incomprehensible as it still is to me to this day, it's believed that a third of the angels of heaven followed the rebellion of Lucifer against God the Father. These fallen angels are Satan's minions to carry out his evil plans against God, against his creation, against the creatures that he has made, especially mankind. And Paul tells us that he seeks to do this by taking people, as he said in 2 Timothy 2, he said, to take them captive to do his will. And he, it's interesting that he has really four ways in which he takes people captive, and each one is progressively more horrible. But basically, he starts with our sin nature. As James said in his first letter, he says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed, and then after de desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin with his full grown gives birth to death. So already I, I have this weakness, this proclivity, this attraction to the things that God says thou shalt not. And the Bible describes that as being a sin nature. Paul said, I'm living daily in conflict when he wrote in Romans 7 because he says the good that I know and that I want to do, I find myself sometimes not doing it. And the evil that I know is evil and I don't want to do, I end up finding myself attracted and doing it. So Satan plays upon that. He, he doesn't make us choose evil. He just convinces us that choosing evil is our best choice. That's why when I talk to people who are caught up in, in self-destructive lifestyles, and they say, I just don't know why I do it. And my answer is really unkind. You do it because you like it. You do it because there's something that gratifies and satisfies when you do that thing. But what you don't recognize is at the end of that is going to be your worst nightmare. That's simple. When people say to me, I don't see how somebody could be a heroin addict. I only have one question. Have you ever tried it? I hope not. Because if you do, it's really hard to stop. We know the end results. We see lives destroyed by fentanyl and methamphetamines and all of these things. And we say, how can people throw their lives away? It's like when somebody asked Elvis' bodyguard, how could such a smart, talented, gifted individual become addicted to drugs? And his answer was really simple. He says, Elvis wasn't addicted to drugs. He was addicted to fame. So he took drugs to get up for the concert so he could wow the crowds and he took drugs so he could get down from the drugs he had taken to get up. And that became the cycle that killed him. We have to understand that that sin nature is something that the enemy of our souls is constantly trying to ply. The weakness lies within my own humanity and it's only by the grace of God, it's only by sitting at the feet of Jesus that we can change the trajectory of our lives. But secondly, when he begins to do that on a large numerical basis, he moves from the individual to the culture. Take the story of Lot and his family. Remember it? Genesis 19, 18, 19. This whole story of Lot, <laughs> it's always this 
you know, the points that we always make when we teach on this, me and about everybody else who's ever read somebody else's commentary. But here's Lot living with Abraham, and then he moves near to Sodom, and the next thing we know, he's in Sodom, and then we realize that Sodom is also inside of his wife and his kids. What happened? Culture influences thoughts, and thoughts control our behaviors. When he says again in Ephesians 2, 2, he said, you followed the ways of this world. Not just the fact that you dress like you live in Spokane, Washington. We do have our own uniform, you know, I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> Works for me. When Peter says that we need to escape the corruption in the world, that's caused by our own evil desires. When Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter and says, in the last days, or your first letter, excuse me, he says, in the last days, some of you will abandon the faith, following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I've seen the tragedy uphand, close and personal, of young people who were, as we talked about last week, indoctrinated in the faith, but not indwelt by the Holy Spirit and how the cultures begin to eat away at them and they become so woke. As I was having a conversation with someone, one of the largest Christian ministries, especially in music today, this insider said, the pastors have become so woke, it's pathetic. Gay's fine. Trans not an issue, and on and on it goes. And you go, they're following deceiving spirits. They're following things that are taught by demons. That a demon can convince someone who is otherwise intelligent that basically there's more than two genders. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking to myself over and over again, this is such obvious and palpable nonsense. How does someone come to believe something so ridiculous that I can just simply change my gender because I want to or I feel like it? It's as crazy as evolution that says nothing popped up and became something. And yet we were conditioned to believe that out of nothing could come life. And we're told it's scientific. And now when somebody says it's scientific to say that a man can change his mind and become a woman or vice versa or any variety of variations on that theme. And not only can they do it once, but they can do it on an ongoing basis depending on how they feel that morning. I get it. I wake up some mornings, I look at my wife's clothes and think, I, I want to feel pretty. <laughs> and then she walks us and says, take that off. <laughs> okay. Just kind of trying it out. <laughs> but when a sinful nature becomes so unrestrained within a culture, before long the culture itself becomes permeated with that sinfulness. And when that happens, we begin to experience the fourth, third thing is with a spiritual of oppression. When Paul warned the Ephesians in chapter 4, he said, do not give the devil a foothold. 
He says, you have to understand that when you just start allowing things and, and giving permission for certain things, he will begin to worm his way deeper and deeper and deeper, not only into your life, but to worm his way down into the very culture itself. That's why he said in chapter, verse 11 of chapter 6, you need to take your stand against the devil's evil schemes. You need to determine right now, I'm not going to believe things that aren't true. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the answer to communism was simply to determine, I will no longer tell lies. And I will not believe lies. And I will not give space to lies. Paul went on in verse 16 of the same chapter, says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And Peter went on to warn, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because if you won't, he will bring a spirit of heavy oppression upon a culture that he'll begin to permeate the newspapers and the media and the conversations over the water cooler. If, oh, that's right, we can't do that anymore. And suddenly our whole world is just filled with demonic lies. And people sit by quietly afraid to speak up. Afraid to say, uh, that's wrong. And that's when we come to the fourth and final stage of, of possession. Jesus in Mark three twelve simply said, Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons. I think it's kind of one of those clear references that if you're sick, it doesn't mean you have a demon as some people teach, unfortunately. But the reality is that he cast out many demons because demons had taken control. I mean, what exactly is demon possession? Well, the interest, the original word that's used in the text is a combination of words. It's, it's the word demon, and the other one is to own or to possess. Essentially, when it says, in, in, for example, in Luke 4.33, in the synagogue, there's a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. Specifically, as Barclay puts it, his demon possession involves a demon having direct and complete control over the thoughts and or the actions of the person. And then he added, he said, the ancient world had a strange respect for such people because they said the gods had taken away their wits in order to put the mind of the gods in them. I would say that's true. He, he seeks to put the mind of the demons inside of the person. I've encountered people who have been demon-possessed and um, <laughs> it's, it's really frightening. I gotta be quite honest. When you're in a, in a situation where a grown man tries to hold down a young lady and suddenly she picks him up and throws him through the air 10 feet across the room and he hits the back wall and you realize, not by might, <laughs> <laughs> not by strength. It's got to be by God's spirit. When I sat with a young Indian boy in the Bible college in India 
and he described to me how that the elderly woman who lived across the street was a divine like this. She would tell people anything they had. They'd come for questions. She would prevail the future. And he says, and, and I, you know, I just played with her, talked to her. I liked her. And then one day she died. And he says, I don't know what happened. The next thing I know was I was wearing her clothes. I was sitting where she sat. And the spirit began to speak through me. And he shared with me his whole journey of having that power broken in his life by giving his life to Jesus Christ. Someone came and shared Christ with him and the power of that spirit. And I, I heard that story over and over, just similar stories. And you go away and realize when you live in a world where they have 300 million gods, or as they call them, 300 million demons, and you look at a culture that has been driven to the worst kind of sins. We, we get this idea that somehow the Hindu world is this kind of holy, reverent, right kind of people when the deepest depths of sinful corruption and addiction to the point even where there are black Hindus who use, engage in human sacrifices to expiate their sin. I mean, the, the level of poverty and disease and suffering. I know that the closer I would get to some holy site, the more I would see the diseased and the demented and the damaged and the demon-possessed. As if it was radiating out of this single source. And you run out of explanations. As I was asking one pastor, I said, Do you, does it bother you that we Americans are so prosperous and successful? He said, no. It's not your fault. We've done this to ourselves in our worshiping of the demons and the devils that we call our gods. Friends, many times people talk about conspiracies. And I've always had one view about conspiracies. I'm not saying they don't exist. What I am saying is that there's an ultimate conspiracy that comes out of the pits of hell that uses a lot of useful idiots and elects them to positions of authority so they can foment their evil designs and desires upon a culture that seeks to lead an entire nation, if not the entire world, into depths of depravity and depression and ugliness. You wonder what that deep, dark feeling was that you went through or maybe you're still going through when you were under lockdown? Oh, I'm sure there's a psychological dynamic to it. But let me add this, friends. There is a demonic di dynamic to it too because the Spirit of God sets people free and the Spirit of darkness puts people in bondage. And I just wonder how many of us even thought, is this a spiritual thing? Is this a spiritual thing that we're going through? Well, no, it's a medical crisis. No, it's this kind. And we go through all this kind of stuff because we're told by the talking heads that that's what it is. And yet we're sitting saying, why am I so depressed? Why do I feel so dark? Why can't I shake these feelings? My opinion, but I think as a nation, we are facing a tsunami of evil that is flowing out of the highest places in this nation, not because, simply because these people are twisted and demented. They are power hungry, no question about that. But most people I've ever encountered who became demon possessed did so because they wanted the power that the demon promised that they would have, not realizing it was a devil's bargain. 
that they would have the power, but he would destroy them personally through the process and mock at their death. Now, the question that comes up on a lighter note, why did Paul object to what this woman was saying? Wasn't it the truth? These are the servants of the Most High God showing us the way to be saved. I thought, wow, that's gospel, isn't it? Well, the devil's in the details. See, there's two parts to that answer. The first is that Satan and his minions are always liars, even when they're telling the truth. Jesus said this way in John 8. He said, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him, But when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. (laughs) Who's the most effective liar? The person who convinces you that their lie is the truth. Secondly, not all of his lies were completely false. In the same way in Prince's Bride that Wesley was not completely dead. He was mostly dead, but he wasn't completely dead. (laughs) He has half-truths. He has half-lies. When he told Eve, eat the fruit, you won't die, she didn't immediately, but one day she did. She's She's not with us anymore, you may have noticed. But it's interesting what the Lord told Israel about this in Deuteronomy 13. He says, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or a wonder, and if the sign or the wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, for it is the Lord your God you must follow. Let me put this into a different set of terms. Don't believe it because of the miracle. Believe it or reject it based upon the doctrine. People will come and do amazing things, and then they'll tell you to believe something that's not true, that contradicts the word of God. And you say, well, why would God let that happen? Because he wants to find out whether or not you love him or you just love what you get from him. You know, I I found that my grandkids, especially the young ones, they love it when grandpa and grandma show up. And I would like to think it's because they just love us so much. But they love the boxes of candy grandma's bringing them. They love the toys. I mean, what can I say? I'll take love any way I can get it. <laughs> but I know if I show up, if we show up with nothing, they're going to be disappointed. They like the goldfish. <laughs> Friends, this is what was going on in Philippi and why Paul cast the demon out of this woman in order to silence her. That What the girl was saying was true. They were servants of the Most High God. But by using that phrase, Most High God, Satan was seeking to confuse the message because the Greeks called Zeus the Most High God. The Romans called Jupiter the Most High God. 
The Canaanites called Baal the Most High God. Islam calls Allah the Most High God. And this is why when Paul casts out the demon, he makes it very clear that the power to both heal and to save came not from the Most High God, but rather, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. See, it was a very clear message that the early church preached. They didn't go around saying, you know, it's important that you believe in God. Paul, James Ward, he said, you believe that there's one God? Good, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Well, he's a very religious man, or very spiritual person, or he has great faith. And I have to ask, after every one of those statements, who, what, where, and when? Who do they have faith in? What spirit do they move by? Where does their power come from? Because the apostles were very clear. In Acts 4, he said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. We are not saved by just believing in the Most High God. We are saved in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who died and paid for my sins on the cross and who rose the third day from the dead that I might have hope of eternal life. There is no other one. That's why when Paul was dealing with the Corinthians, and that's the best I can say, he ministered to them, but he was dealing with them because, I mean, uh, they had all sorts of problems. In fact, sometimes when I get discouraged by the church in this culture, I read Corinthians and I feel better. But he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You see, the Corinthians were all into sophistry, all into, they were really the forefathers of the modern legal profession. It was all about winning the argument. Rhetoric was something they studied so that they could out-debate the other guy, regardless of what was true or not. It was all about winning. And he says, when I came to you, I just decided I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to speak straight, direct, and specific. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no way to the Father but by him. You, we can argue until the, the cows come home, whenever that is. As I remember on the dairy farms, it was about 2 in the afternoon. So I don't know how great an illustration that is. But, but he said, there's only one way. Regardless of what you say, there's only one way to heaven. And somehow we bought into this lie that we have to be able to convince people, persuade them, lay it out, you know, memorize everything that's ever been written about how to win your neighbor to Christ and not realize that sometimes the most powerful thing you say is, well, the bottom line is there's only one way to God and that's through Jesus. There's only one way to get to heaven through Jesus. And even if you don't believe that there's a heaven, one day you will. But sadly, you may find that you're not in it. Oh, that's right. We, 
forgot to make a note here. Take hell out of your sermons. <laughs> Incorrigible. This is why when the demons came out and, and they said, we know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God, he responded, be quiet and come out of him. See, he wasn't looking for endorsements. He wasn't looking for recommendations. He wasn't seeking to create a public image or a celebrity uh, status. He wasn't going to become a crossover artist so that I can reach a larger audience with a songs that are so watered down that nobody knows exactly what I'm singing about anymore. In fact, John tells us Jesus did not need man's testimony. In John 5, he said to them, I do not accept praise from men. Unlike the Pharisees who they love the praise of men more than they love the praise of God. In fact, he said in Luke 16, 15, and this is a passage that troubles me every time I read it and makes me question and examine myself. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. That... That makes me uncomfortable. What is highly valued by men is actually detestable to God. The danger is that we can become so completely out of step with our Savior, who according to Isaiah 53, as I mentioned before, was he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. That nothing in his appearance that we should desire him in fact, he was despised and rejected by men, and yet we are obsessed with not being despised and being accepted. We're craving the approval of men, especially when it comes to standing up for our Christian faith. I suspect that there was nothing cool, current, or contemporary about Jesus. I don't think Jesus walked into a room and say, hey, where'd you get those sandals? Wow. Nowhere I can get a pair. Yeah, down here, TJ Maxx, I got them on sale. <laughs> Jesus didn't strive to be relevant <laughs> because he was the most relevant person who's ever lived. That he didn't try to be cool, current, or contemporary because he superseded cool, current, and contemporary. He was above and beyond all of that. And his word is always current and contemporary. That's why it says in Matthew 7, when he begins to teach, he is not following the cultural pattern of teaching the word of God. He says the crowds were astonished and overwhelmed with bewilderment and wonder at his teaching, for he is taught as one who had and was the authority. He didn't sit there and footnote rabbi so-and-so or rabbi this. But he just simply said, my father is said. You see, the bottom line is that the gospel doesn't need outside endorsements. In a world that worships a celebrity culture, we get all excited when some celebrity comes out and says, well, I'm a Christian. 
And then we get embarrassed when they crash and burn because they were never given a chance for their faith to ever mature into anything else than just another celebrity gig. Jesus didn't have any celebrities. In fact, the people who were in positions of power, the Nicodemuses, the Joseph of Arimathea, and others, it said they were believers, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So the same men who could have stopped his execution conveniently weren't there. And Jesus said, okay. But secondly, he doesn't need any collaborators. Christianity is a members-only organization. People say, you Christians are being so exclusive. You need to be more inclusive. Um, we will include anybody who wants to walk with Jesus, honor his word, follow him. <laughs> but the Christian church is exclusive in the sense that we're, it's not just anybody show up and you can become part of the body of Christ. You have to be born into the body of Christ through the miraculous of the spiritual birth. We're not, we're not looking to convince everybody to believe what we believe. We're just going to declare what we believe and leave the convincing to the Holy Spirit. And that takes a huge load off of everybody's shoulders, doesn't it? That you're not responsible if somebody says, well, I don't believe in that. No, that's between them and God. It's like I like to share with non-Christians. I often say to them, you know, I am rubber and you are glue. What you say bounces off of me and it sticks on you. You may want to write that down. Do you know I need to repeat that? <laughs> I believe that when you tell people about Jesus, it sticks on them. And the more reactionary they become, the more they've gotten stuck. I would use the illustration of Br'er Rabbit, that that's not politically correct anymore. The simple fact is, we underestimate the stickiness power of the Holy Spirit and God's word. His word does not return to him void. And if I speak God's word to people, if I pray over somebody and say, in the name of Jesus, the hound of heaven has their scent in his nostrils and he won't stop until he's treed them. Shoot them, bag them, make them into a wall hanging. The thirdly, God will not accept any counterfeits. No imitations. I remember years ago, we were consulting with different sound companies about our sound systems, our projectors, and all this kind of stuff. And I remember one of the salesmen, Christian man, but nonetheless, he says, well, what you need to do is get these, uh, these misters, these kind of fog uh, machines, he says, it's incredible when you have the lights and the fog is coming up and it reflects off you. He says, we call it artificial Holy Spirit. I was done. <laughs> right this is not, no way am I going to, you know, but I just thought, you're saying to this means the straight face? <laughs> artificial Holy Spirit. God deliver us from trying to conjure up anything here. That sometimes churches get into the idea that they have to have such a powerful outward expression of the Holy Spirit's presence that they literally conjure it up. 
It's like babies, baby, 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 baby. Say it really fast. Now you got tongues. Hallelujah. <laughs> I spoke at this little church one time when I was just a new believer. And as I'm taking, people are jumping up and they start running up and down the aisles while I'm preaching. I thought to myself, is it that bad? <laughs> Did I walk into a, a Zuma class or something? I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> but I love what one old saint said to me. He said, I don't care how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you come down. God doesn't want counterfeits. God, make me real, make me sincere, make me tell the truth, make me confess the facts. Don't let me ever give anybody the idea that I'm anything but a sinner saved by grace who only wants you to hear the wonderful grace of God that transforms lives that come in brokenness and humbleness before him and say, Father, have mercy upon me for I am a sinner. Don't let me ever pretend to be anything but that. He doesn't take endorsements. He doesn't take collaborators. He doesn't take counterfeits. And he doesn't take compromise. He will not compromise. That we begin to resist the work of the Holy Spirit when we give permission to compromise. And that's why one important question is, is it the truth? Is it the truth? Is it the truth? Because God loves the truth, the enemy of our soul is a liar. The truth has never been in him, and he hates the truth. So when somebody comes up to me with a criticism, and you know, every fiber inside of my insecure, self-defensive, self-justifying, self-vindicating personality wants to rise up and say, Whoa, what do you, what do you mean? And the Holy Spirit says, rather than talking to them, just ask yourself the question, Lord, is that the truth? And that's why I find almost daily I have to come to my wife and say, I'm sorry. It's the truth. At the end of the day, I think that you and I have to deal with a, a culture that is moving so quickly away from anything that resembles a Christian nation. And I, I don't think this is a recent thing. We, this has been under underway for a very long time. It's been underway for my entire life. I mean, we sometimes overlook the fact that we live in a culture that has become so enamored with our own power and success that many times we love that more than we do walking with God. For many Christians, we get discouraged because we see the world, the culture around us turning away from Christ and we don't realize it's a huge opportunity to make a difference. <laughs> Suddenly, the, there's a distinction between Christ and the rest of the world it becomes very, very clear. It's, hider, it's harder for people to hide in the shadows anymore. And I think increasingly, we're gonna find our culture moving towards more and more emphasis, demanding that we conform that we comply, that we go along with things. Why are we open right now? Because right along last, last, what was it, May or June, we just simply said, enough's enough. 
the government has no right to tell us how to worship our God. I think it's come more and more. They may get me. <laughs> what can I say, friends? We are in the battle of our lives right now. And it's not a political battle alone. It's a battle for the hearts and the souls of men. Will they respond to the gospel? Have they even heard it? When, when Kim was saying that some of these kings, or Diane was saying, some of these kids that we're doing in these neighborhoods, which are many of them, some of them are the worst, darkest neighborhoods. The police don't even like to go into them. And they're finding kids in there who have never heard the gospel, who do not know who Jesus is, they don't know that Easter and Christmas is about Christ. And we sit there and say, we live in America. How is that possible? Well, <laughs> I don't have time to go into that. You might want to check some of my podcasts. <laughs> but here's the thing that we need to understand is that we have the answer to what's missing. And when we talk about demonic control, and I think of one of the places where we minister, Satan has ruled supreme there because of the level of drug addiction and single-parent homes and neglected kids, and the list goes on and on of criminality, and Satan has his hooks into that, and the answer is not simply going to be a sociological one. It's not going to simply be a psychological one. It's Praying, and I would just challenge you as we were challenged. Pick one of those neighborhoods, Woodhaven over here, or just behind our own, own area here. These apartments are filled with Section 8 single parents. Or to Case of Village, it used to be called Royal, what was it? Mead Royale. Or even Forest, Forest Creek. These are places that the gospel is absent for the most part until our people start going in there and showing practical love and care and service to these neighborhoods. They, they just pretty much, nobody went there. And for the first time, these kids and their parents and particularly their moms are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sit down with Jeff and Kim and ask them about what YFC is doing downtown and the depth of, of violence most people don't realize our crime rate in this city is spiking. Violent crime, unreported. Because it looks bad when you're trying to profile your city around the world as being a good place to raise a family. And if our government continues to promote the kind of things within our school system that they're pushing so hard, God have mercy. And you and I sit back and say, whence comes this madness? And the answer is in Scripture. Because they did not want to retain the knowledge of the truth, God gave them over to a strong delusion that they would believe a lie. Even an obvious, unavoidable, unmistakable lie, they'll believe it. And so yesterday our local paper featured the wonderful story of a gentleman who changed his sexual 
identity. And how wonderful that's been. And people are buying it. When in fact, it's a horrific way to lead your life. Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit will speak to each and every one of us in a way that would be profound and impactful. Um, I pray, God, that, that, that if there's only one thing that any of us would do from this point on, it's that we'd start praying for our nation, praying for our city, praying for our leaders, that our leadership in this nation and every party and every group would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that God, you'd have mercy upon their souls. But Lord, that there would be a revival and a move in this land that is born of your Holy Spirit, a, a spontaneous expression of the Spirit of God would flow because your people have humbled themselves and they prayed and they said, God, have mercy and forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our compliance. Forgive us for remaining silent and not telling people of the hope and the reason for that hope that's in us, Lord. We pray for that kind of a miracle in every one of us, Lord because it does begin with me. We ask you for this, Father, in Jesus' name.